0: how's it going this pink shirt brings me delight that's all I can say if you missed last week one of the key points is that love changes everything I don't love pink but I love Heidi she loves pink so I have my pink shirt on today I'm preaching in pink so that I can come off the couch and if you're a visitor here today this we're weird This is how we are. Well, me anyways. Welcome. Glad to see you. Great to be together. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to break this down. Again, love changes everything. It changes your heart. And when God's grace slams into your heart, it creates. We've been talking about this as we've moved through the book of uh, Habakkuk. And today we're going to see a vital truth, that that love for God extinguishes false worship, that a love for God, a genuine love for who God is, extinguishes a heart of false worship, and this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit different, and what I mean by that is I'm going to do a quick review, and then I'm going to do the application to the scripture that we're going to look at, and then we'll look through the scriptures as our authoritative word and direction from God, and then close with inspiration. Habakkuk starts out with a problem. He's worried about pain and suffering that is all around him. And so, unlike other prophets in the Old Testament who receive the word from God and then go and deliver it to God's people, Habakkuk pumps the brakes and he starts a dialogue with God. He's not happy with the word that he has received. But we see, as we move through chapter 2 and now into chapter 3, that his worry has completely changed to worship. The pain has changed to praise. How does this happen in a person's life? He's lamenting with God, I don't like what's going on. All I see is pain and suffering. And God says to him, oh, I'm doing something. And then he shows him what he's going to do. Chapter 2, the key verse, God says to Habakkuk, the just, the righteous shall live by faith not facts, faith, but biblical faith is always rested on a foundation of facts, may not have all the facts, but our faith isn't some reckless worldly wishing or hoping. He's challenging Habakkuk to have faith in God as God reveals His justice and his wrath, but also His mercy and His goodness, I said it the first week i 'm going to say it again. The statistics show this. My personal conversations support it. Suffering is the number one reason why people stop believing in God. Suffering and pain is the number one reason why people stop going to church. The second reason is sin. Both suffering and sin play a crucial role in drawing people away from the goodness and the glory of God. There are three myths that Christians cling to in regards to suffering and sin. I wanna shoot through these real quick. Three myths. Myth number one that Christians cling to or Or come to Christ holding on to. If you don't sin, you won't suffer. If you live your life for God, you will live without suffering. Come to Jesus and find health and prosperity. This is a false gospel, but it resonates with human nature. Because we're the center of ourselves and we don't want pain and suffering. And so when people grip this myth and then suffering happens, the words of Jesus where he says, in this world you will suffer. This world's not gonna love you. They hated me. They're gonna hate you. Mark tells us that the road to heaven is paved with suffering. And so the suffering comes in our false view of God takes seed in our hearts. Uh, Myth number two, if you suffer, it is because of sin or lack of faith. This is a myth. It is a lie from Satan. Now, uh, we did learn in Habakkuk that God is going to bring justice to a sinful uh, Babylonian culture, as well as his own people who were in sin. God does at times use pain and suffering to draw his people back because of their sin. But that doesn't mean that every time you sin or you suffer, it is because of sin. It's not true. It's also not true that if you're suffering, if you're ill or you're, you're sick, it is because you don't have enough faith in God. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches us. And then, third, when you suffer, you will understand God's will. There's this thought that when we go through suffering, we're going to fully understand what God is doing in our lives. And sometimes we do. Oftentimes we look back and we go, oh, I look at the painful experiences I've had. And in the moment, I just didn't understand what God's doing. I didn't understand his will and I didn't like it. There are those moments now where I look back and I go, oh, that's what he was doing. But there are times when we don't fully understand or see. Habakkuk is wrestling with all of these myths. And so, before we jump into scripture and see what's going on in his heart, I want to speak to three people that are probably here today. And my hope is to encourage you, to give you eternal hope, not worldly hope or wishful thinking. First, to those who are suffering and struggling to see God's will. This is normal. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't always understand, but if you are here suffering, I want to exhort and encourage you to believe and put your faith and trust in the character of God. In that moment, I know this moment. This moment when you do not understand the hand of God. You can't even fathom what's going on. Will you join me in putting our faith and trust in the heart of God? The word of God reveals his heart, but it also shows us his hand. And in those moments when we don't fully understand His hand, let's embrace who he is in his heart. This is what the Bible means when we're commanded to worship in spirit and in truth. I'm gonna talk about that this morning. Not in a feeling or emotion. Not in your desires or your understanding. No, no, faith. In the truth of who God is. Spirit and truth. Number those, number two, to those of you who are walking with somebody that is in a dark spot in the midst of suffering and pain, to to those of you who are doing life, we're called to carry each other's burdens. Can I charge you to be a faithful presence? And don't avoid and don't be the Bible whisperer. You know that person. I, I've caught myself doing this all the time or at times. Where I gotta have the answer. I gotta I gotta come alongside the person. I gotta help them. And I say things that aren't helpful. Like you just gotta let go and let God. Or in times like these, just, just count your blessings. The back of my hand is a blessing right now. You know I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. When you're coming alongside somebody, don't. Don't go, you know, I know how you feel this one time when I, was, when I had the, no, it's, it's not about you. Just be a faithful presence, come alongside, sit with your loved ones and your friends and your family in their pain. Weep with them, pray with them. And when the questions come up, and they will, pursue God through his word together. And the spirit of God will grant a peace through you as you help another person carry their burden. You pursue God together. And as you pursue God together, even though you don't understand the hand, you will see and your faith will grow towards the heart of God. The heart of God is written on the pages of the Bible from the beginning to the end. And he's good, and he's just, and he's merciful, and he keeps his promises. He's proven it over and over and over again. And for you here that is not convinced or you're not a believer, you're not sure, maybe you're checking out church, You're not sure about Jesus. I just want to be flat out honest with you. This world is full of pain and suffering. And coming to Jesus doesn't solve all the pain and suffering. Too many people make a decision because they want comfort, not the comforter. And we are here at Sun River Church to help you find and follow Jesus. Not just make a decision, The decision could be the springboard, but it's just the beginning of helping you to grow in your loving relationship with who God is, not the God that you or I have created in our own minds. Oftentimes it starts with a decision, and I hope God will open your mind and your heart and your eyes to see his grace And then you will join community here, not just for a one-time decision, but for a life of walking with him and growing in your knowledge of who he is. This is the application to what we're going to learn from Habakkuk this morning. Grab your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to move fairly quickly. Last week, he began to sing praise to God, but he did it through prayer. And today he shifts to singing praise to God. Something has happened in his heart. He has received the word of God and he begins to worship. He sees God's wrath, he sees God's mercy, he sees God's justice, and he surrenders his heart. And he breaks out in song from pain to praise. These uh, small verses here are amazing. And they give us three factors, crucial factors that Habakkuk reveals to move us to worship God through music. The whole chapter is sung. That word selah that Popped up on the screen when we were doing the public reading scripture. You might think, well, What does that mean? Most commentaries believe that that is a musical note or a direction for whoever's conducting the music. Habakkuk, out of his heart, is singing. He sings a prayer to God out loud and then he praises God. Why does music play such a vital role? in our worship. Why is it so important? One pastor puts it this way, and I liked this, because it's the only activity when the, when the uh, church gathers, the ecclesia gathers, It's the only activity that moves the mind and emotions of the congregation in unison. As I'm talking right now, you're listening, I know minds are all over the place. But when we worship music and we stand, we're singing the same words. This pastor says this is the one thing that helps us to do something in unison. The same truths at the same time, and some of us with the same tune. Those are his words, not mine. I used to teach a theology of worship class at Western Seminary with Dan Kimball, and I took the class and then multiple years after helped him with the class and then ended up helping to teach the class. One of the things we spent a lot of time doing is wrestling with common misconceptions about worship through music on Sunday. It is so important that we understand the place that music and worship through music has when we gather, because if we're not careful, we will fall into a heart of false worship. I have done this, you have done this, we cannot do this. Misconception number one, we need music to worship. Music is not worship. It's a means of expressing worship. Worship is praising God for his character, for his works, for his promises, for his faithful, from a heart and mind that is rooted in who he is. Music is just a vehicle. Misconception number two is that music needs to be specific, a specific type of music to worship. Man, music draws all kinds of emotions and feelings. God created us with these emotions and feelings. But music does not make worship. The heart and the mind that is... Abiding in God's word creates proper worship through music, through prayer. All of these, not just music, can be off if we're creating it from the wrong place. True worship is based on the truth of what you know by God's word. The words and the melody can and should move you to worship through music. But as A.W. Tozer called this in the 1940s, he called this out. He saw this creeping into the church. His books and his messages on this are prophetic, and they're rooted in God's word, And how God defines worship and praise to him, not the world. He said this, There is no substitute for good theology, whether in our sermons or in our songs. The shallowness of some contemporary sermons, books, and songs may be a major contributing factor to the weakness of a church. And the increase, listen, 1940s, he said this, an increase to religious entertainment. In gathering, we ought to be praising God, not our productions. There's a myth that we need music to set the mood. Can you just imagine what's going to happen in heaven? They walk in, yeah, I'm just not in the mood today. It's not feeling it. I don't like that song. I don't like that guy in the pink shirt. He's ugly. It's bald. I'm shaved. There's a big difference. Now everybody's in the mood. We don't need music to put us in the mood. You see, what puts us in the mood is the truth of God's word. And that's what Habakkuk is spelling out for us in these verses. See, when you get a glimpse of God, this is all throughout Scripture. The disciples, right after the resurrection, right before the ascension, they get a glimpse of God. You know what they did? I'm not in a mood. No, they fell down. They fell down and they worshiped. All throughout Scripture, when you get a glimpse of God and his glory, you break out in praise. If you come in here looking for the holiness and the glory of God, through his words and through the music and through the prayer. It's going to move in your heart from a proper place of worship. And listen, the highest moment of worship in your life and mine, the highest moment, the mountaintop, the pinnacle of worship in our souls is when we are staring and seeing the holiness, the justice, the grace, the mercy the wrath, the kindness of a perfect God. So factor number one that Habakkuk shares with us is God's splendor. God, of, God came from Taman, verse 3, and the Holy One of Mount Paran. His splendor, covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. It's not just a little flicker. It covers. His brightness is like the light. Rays flash from his hands. There he veiled his power. You see, according to most scholars, Mount Perrin is another name for the entire Sinai Peninsula or Mount Sinai itself. Habakkuk here seems to be remembering the march that Israel had from Mount Sinai to the promised land. He's reflecting on this. Everything about this stanza reveals God's glory. His glory covers the heavens. It is an anticipation of the time when his glory will cover the whole earth, as followers of Jesus and believers in God, we can't wait for that day. Because when his glory is fully seen, it will extinguish all the pain. All creation joins in praising him as the earth is filled with his presence. You see, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself and his glory, oftentimes through judgments. That's what we see in the book of Habakkuk, but we, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. That is through judgment that God reveals how amazing he is. But in this present dispensation, which is a long theological word, just means this time frame under God's plan, he has to you and I revealed. His glory through Jesus Christ. John 1. The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. What shrouds us from that splendor? What what, sh- what shrouds or what veils us to see the majesty of God? A man-centered culture. It is not an overstatement to say that our culture, our pleasure-centered culture has crept into the church and produced false worship. How do we know? How do we test this? Well, yeah, we test it against God's word, but how do we know? The answer lies in another question. Why do we worship Why do we come here? What's the point? Is it for God or is it for man? There is an unspoken but increasingly common assumption that worship is primarily for us to meet our needs, Number one, it is to exalt God, to glorify God. Number two, it's not to meet your needs. It's to edify the body. We gather to glorify God, and you come to meet somebody else's needs. Again, Tozer hits the nail on the head and says, such worship services are entertainment-focused. And the worshipers are uncommitted spectators who are silently grading the performance. Wow. Drums weren't in church, folks. It was still the organ in the 30s and 40s. I wasn't alive then, but I've read history. But there was something creeping in, this man-centeredness. Gordon Conwell, who started... uh, a university in Boston and was a pastor, he had a dream one night that he was preaching to his church and a stranger came and sat in the pew and he couldn't really see the stranger's face and in his dream, at the end of his sermon, he walks back and he's talking to the ushers and somewhere along the line, he finds out that the stranger in his church was Jesus himself and this, he shares in multiple stories, gripped him. It it refocused his mind. Man, when I'm preaching... What does Jesus think about these words when we're singing worship to him and he is here in our midst? What is going on in our hearts and our minds? This is what he said. We need to meet for corporate worship and remember that Christ is in our midst. He walks the aisles of our churches and sits beside us. He searches for those who worship in spirit and in truth. He desires our praise. This needs to be our highest priority. We must answer truthfully. Do we worship as he desires? In his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Kent Hughes says this, the telltale sign of this kind of thinking is common in post, is common with a post church question. Hey, what'd you think of the service? He says. The real question ought to be, what did God think of it and of those who were worshiping? The thought should be, what did I give to God, he says. It is so easy to forget that in going to worship, our main concern should be to worship in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus commands in John chapter 4. It is not to receive, he says, a lift For our own selves. Therefore. It is important that we understand. In distinction. To the popular view. That worship. Is for us. No. That worship begins not with man. As its focus. But God. Worship must be orchestrated. And conducted with the vision before us. Of an awesome. Holy, transcending God, who is to be pleased and above all glorified by our worship. Listen, everything we're trying to do in this gathering of corporate worship needs to flow through this understanding. God is glorified, his body is edified, and the lost are found. That's what we're commanded. Some say, well, what about our needs then? Where does that fit? Let me help to answer that. When we worship and adore God, and we sing and we pray, and we listen to his words, his peace, when he's the focus, his peace will well up within our souls. It'll leave us with a sense of joy that's unexplainable. But this is the byproduct, not the goal. This is evidence of God's generous grace. We don't earn, we don't deserve. Worship through music is designed as a vehicle to help us Elevate the majesty and the glory of God. It's a gift from God. It is not designed to be culturally relevant. It is for and about God. True worship is when believers are given an opportunity to express their heart and their mind. I've heard Craig Hardinger over at Arcade say this, and it has stuck with me. I've heard him say this multiple times. Churches that have become addicted to being relevant have in turn become irrelevant. We're supposed to be set apart in, not of, We're supposed to be countercultural to the world. And listen, music offered to God needs, as I've said, to avoid world or cultural trends. I know this is pretty aggressive stuff I'm saying. Our music and our worship through music, just like Habakkuk's words in worship, need to reflect heaven and God, not the world and the culture. Music that carries divine truth Listen, divine truth, his, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his grace, his wrath, his justice, all of the character, characteristics of God must be upheld. And so music in the church must be because God is pure and holy and just and worthy. The music must be excellent. Excellent. Especially from your heart and your mind, the music must reflect the glory of God. It must be led well. It cannot be cheap or superficial. God deserves the best from us when we lift our voices, even those of us who aren't in tune. It must be intelligent, sympt- uh, systematic, it demonstrates beauty and order. Majesty, quality, it must be poetic and rhythmic. First and second Corinthians is an indictment against a church who is false worshiping, there's disorder and chaos. And mostly, music needs to support the preaching of God's word. Music must support the preaching of God's word. The word needs to be preached. In the music, these two go hand in hand. That's why, partly why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It must be deep. It must be theologically sound. It must be in line with scripture. It must be gospel-centered so that when we're doing this all together and lifting words of truth to God, we are doing it out loud. God wants to hear us sing and lift our voices. It's all throughout scripture. Sing praise, sing a new song to God. All throughout scripture, we're commanded from a mind that understands and a heart that loves the one true God. This is when the words carry the truth and the melody carries our emotions to the truth. Without this truth... It's like a rudderless ship on the ocean. Factor number two, Habakkuk says, the sovereignty of God. Did you see that? We worship his splendor, but we also worship his sovereignty, that he is in complete control. He stood and measured. This word measure, you can underline it, it's pronounced mood. It's a different word than in our English. It means to shake, to get an idea. He measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Here it is His were the everlasting ways. He's sovereign. Armies either push forward. To gain ground, or they fall back in retreat. But here we see the Lord simply stood in his sovereignty and faced his enemy unafraid. In fact, he calmly measures the earth as a sign that he owns the earth. God's word, his inspired word of God, all 66 books, is our measure. It's our standard for who God is in his splendor and his sovereignty. We do not add to his word. We do not take away. He has revealed his word to us. We believe this inspired word, which is profitable for all things, is closed. Revelation twenty two eighteen. 18. There's a warning. I warn everyone, John says, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them. God will add him to the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of this book, of this prophecy, prophecy, you see, we're, we're commanded to receive God's word like Habakkuk and to worship in spirit and in truth. Again, that's a reference from John chapter 24. I encourage you to go and read that whole chapter. Where Jesus gives this command to worship in spirit and in truth. In truth means that we come informed by the objective revelation, not subjective points outside of the Bible, but the objective revelation of God's Word. In a sense, our worship is governed by what we know and believe about God that is written in His Word and we worship in spirit to worship in spirit is referring to our inner being true worshipers or true worship flows from the inside out worship is not just some external thing we do it's an activity that starts first in our heart and in our mind this is why jesus warns the hypocrites with quoting words from Isaiah when Jesus said these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. It's Isaiah 29 and Mark chapter 7. So true worship must spring from within a man's spirit and is tethered to his mind. This happens when the truth about who God is in his grace slams into your heart. If it doesn't, it's just a box you check. It's something that makes you feel good on the outside or not. Do you love God more than anything else? Simple question. Hard to answer, hard to live out. But a genuine love for who God is, the fullness of who he is, creates a heart of worship, his splendor, his sovereignty. And factor number three, his salvation. We worship God because he saves us. Listen, we can summarize it all down to this one very basic statement here. We have been saved. If you believe in Jesus, that he has taken your place on the cross and you have confessed your sins and placed your faith in him, he has taken the wrath of God from you, put it on his son. He has saved you. He's brought you from death to life and your hope is for all eternity. If you are saved if you believe this you have been saved for the ultimate goal of worship and if you've been saved it is impossible for you not to worship him it's impossible was your wrath against the rivers verse 8 oh lord was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea he's asking these questions when you rode on your horse, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. This word writhed means wiggled and squirmed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. And light, the light of your arrows, as they sped a flash of your glittering spear. Glittering. Not the glitter we have in our world. That glitter will not be in heaven I do not like glitter. Thankfully, God does not either. This word, sorry, I have problems. Barak means lightning and flash. It is sparkly, but it's not glitter. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Here it is. You went out for the salvation of your people. You went out. You didn't sit back. You did this. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. He is going to take care of all the pain, all the suffering, all the evil. He's a just, perfect, and righteous God. He's gone out, Habakkuk said, and he will save. This is a cosmic battle where the Lord, the divine warrior, overcomes all evil. The Lord will, he has promised, quench darkness with light. Rivers and the mountains and the sea, the sun the moon, they will all be affected by the Lord's victorious coming in judgment against sin and deliverance. For the saints. One commentary puts this little section of scripture this way, and I love this. This eschatological language not only anticipates the Lord's coming in Habakkuk's near future, but it also anticipates the day of the Lord at the end of time. These are words and images that comfort Habakkuk because he knows that God is faithful to deliver his people and to defeat his enemies. The prophet has the assurance of victory over all the problems that he complained about in chapter 1 at the beginning of his prophecy We today have the assurance that God will act on our behalf because he has acted on his people's behalf all throughout human history. Do you notice this last section where Habakkuk understands and trusts and believes that God is going to save him and that nothing can separate him from the love of God? Nothing He throws down six declarations to praise God for his salvation, his power over his enemies. You march across the earth. You trample down the nations. You come out to save your people. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked. You pierce his hand with your own spear. You tread the sea with your horse. The Lord is exalted. He's worshiped because he's the savior of his people in every generation. This is the thing that lifted Habakkuk to the mountaintops, that elevated him, his understanding of God's greatness. We need to return to this kind of worship that focuses on the glory of God and seeks to honor him alone, his splendor, His sovereignty and his salvation. This past week, on uh, Wednesday night, I believe we had some friends over for dinner, and afterwards they left. And Heidi went to bed, and I'm like, "I'm gonna watch a little TV." I don't watch much TV, but I decided I would turn on the TV and started watching a documentary. I was not prepared for this documentary to grip me the way that it did. I encourage you to go watch it, 30 for 30, called Breakaway. ESPN does these little documentaries in regards to sports. It's a story about Maya Moore. Last Sunday, I used to watch the ESPYs every every year or tried to watch some of it. Last Sunday, I missed it. But Maya Moore stood up in front of everybody... Last Sunday night, accepted the Arthur Ashe Award, one of the most prestigious awards a, an athlete could get. She won national championships in high school. She won national champ, state championships in high school, multiple national championships at UConn, multiple na, uh, NBA titles, every award possible she got. And this documentary walks through her life and also Her family's interaction with a young man named Jonathan Irons, who at age 16 was walking down the street, no mother, no father, inner city poverty, when the police tackle him and he is charged and put in prison for 50 years. Nobody to represent him. Maya Moore's godparents and grandfather doing ministry in the prison begin to develop a relationship with him. He asks Maya's grandfather when she's young, she's not involved in this at all at this time, if he would be his dad. He begins to mentor him. He's the chaplain in the prison, leads him to the Lord. Maya has a strong faith in Jesus. Last week, she gives full glory to God and says, we are all created in his image, and at age 30, she walked away from the NBA at the peak of her career to help her family get Jonathan Irons out of prison. Go watch it, it's really cool. What I wasn't ready for, as I'm sitting by myself watching this, I had just finished the expositional work, the grammar, the language, the points of Habakkuk chapter three. I wasn't ready for the last piece. You're going to see a video clip of it if it plays. You're going to see this clip. I'm sitting in my living room and I'm watching this. And when Jonathan Irons receives word from Maya that the judge has overturned his verdict, he, he breaks into song. I sat there by myself crying. I want you to see this clip. I'll narrate a little bit of it. Hopefully, it plays. That he's been set free from prison has the same effect on you and I when we realize that God has saved us. And when that kind of love slams into your heart, you worship. You worship through music, you sing a song. I am free. Praise the Lord. I'm no longer bound. No more chains are holding me. And it's a blessing to praise the Lord, hallelujah, I am free. We gather to worship God through music, through public reading of scripture, through the sermon, through giving, through serving. I want to invite you to stand. And as we worship God, put your heart and mind on his holiness. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God.